0: hello and welcome to undressing the issue i'm julia alparovitch i am a therapist in los angeles and i specialize in all things having to do with sex relationships infidelity trauma attachment intimacy gender identity and the list goes on and on basically everything that has to do with sex so uh, today, I wanted to touch on something that comes up really frequently in uh, sessions, in relationships, in all sorts of different contexts, and that is attachment. So you probably hear therapists talk a lot about attachment, and reality is it's psychobabble. but I think it's worthwhile to break it down so that you can get a better understanding of what the hell therapists are talking about when they say, hmm, there's something to look at with your attachment. Mm." Sounds smart, but really it's quite simple. So when we talk about attachment, what we're touching on is something called attachment theory. Now, I believe it was John... Bulby who did research with primates um, and how they attach to their mothers Um, And I think that's where it was born, but really um, I'm not really sure exactly who came up with this theory Um, It's just kind of been out there for a while and a lot of therapists have just kind of used it so basically attachment theory is a way of thinking about how adults function in relationships and tying it back to their childhoods of course it's about the childhood how could we go see a therapist without talking about our childhood but where what it breaks down to is how did parents and children bond interact What kind of relationship did they have early on in that child's life that influenced that child to then be a certain way in their adult relationships? So this looks at the bond between the primary caregiver, more psychobabble, basically whoever is raising that kid, whether it's the mom, the mom and dad, the grandparents, adoptive parents, foster parents, whoever it is, um, how attached was that child? How was the bond? What did it look like as that child was growing up? So the idea is that based on this, the child, based on this relationship, develops a certain view of themselves and their value. And they also develop an understanding of how relationships work based on these very early relationships. So Attachment theory basically breaks down attachment styles into four primary styles. Now, these are not cut and dry. They're not like one or the other or the other one. They kind of sit on a spectrum. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's I kind of look at it as a quadrant, um, and somebody can fall really anywhere in that ca- quadrant and be a combination of different attachment styles. So the four primary ones are secure attachment, that's the healthy one, which is basically like nobody. Um, <laughs> it just means everything was perfect, parents had the perfect combination of, you um, discipline and firmness with love and nurturing and communication and that perfect balance is damn near impossible and not to shit on parents but sorry mom my mom doesn't like it when I cuss but um but I cuss so basically not to blame parents for everything but um you know, we have. I, I just want it to be understood that when I start talking about parents, it's not that they've done anything wrong intentionally. It's not that I want to blame them. It's just how things work, given the circumstances, given where the parents were at with their own stuff. You know, it's a combination of things. So basically, these four attachment styles are we already talked about secure attachment, which is what unicorns have then we have something called anxious attachment some people call it anxious ambivalent attachment we have anxious avoidant attachment which i usually refer to as avoidant Um, and then we have dismissive attachment Um, some people call it disorganized i rather would call it um dismissive so i'm going to go into each one of these and i'm going to give you examples of when Uh, what kind of situations or scenarios result in these different attachment styles and how these attachment styles play out in relationships. So we already talked about secure attachment. Um, We may have moments where we can see that we're securely attached, where we can set boundaries and limits, and then we can also um, ask for things, be needy, whatever else, and we're not afraid to. We can communicate our needs, all of that good stuff but most people have a hard time staying in that secure attachment place permanently. So anxious attachment. So imagine secure, just to map out the quadrant, is the top left quadrant, anxious or anxious ambivalent, whatever people call it out there, I call it anxious, is in the top right quadrant. In the bottom right quadrant is avoidant and in the bottom left quadrant is dismissive. So anxious attachment is when somebody doesn't really know where they stand in a relationship, where they're, they have a fear of being abandoned or being rejected, and they tend to be in this constant state of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, now, this attachment style is what often Leads to codependent dynamics. Um, And I hate the word codependent, but what I'm talking about is this neediness, this um, I'm only okay if I'm reassured, Um, I'm only okay if you tell me I'm okay. Uh, Basically, this comes from being raised by a parent who was not consistent in their availability to the child. Um, it can also be developed from trauma. So the classic example of anxious attachment is, for example, having an alcoholic parent. So when a child has an alcoholic parent, for those of you out there who have parents who are alcoholics, bless your heart, um, what children get used to in those situations is they never know how they're going to find that parent. It's unpredictable. It's not consistent. They can come home and find their parent drunk and overly loving and invasive. They can come home and find that parent drunk and angry and combative. They can come home and find that parent drunk and passed out. They can also come home, find that parent sober, and we don't know what that could look like. Either they're sober and they're annoyed that they're sober, they're irritable, they're sober and they're kind of um, tired or quiet. We don't know. So this unpredictability um, causes that child to kind of walk on eggshells. Like as soon as we walk through the door, meaning we as that child, we're already kind of guarded because we don't know what we're walking into. It's this constant state of having to be in survival mode. Like, I don't know what I'm going to be hit with today. Mom could be on the floor, passed out next to a pool of vomit, or mom could be in the kitchen cooking up a storm, wanting to hug and kiss me and love on me and tell me how wonderful I am. And unfortunately, she may not remember that tomorrow. So it's this inconsistent emotional availability from the parents. Meaning, you know, even if mom does sit down and have a conversation with me and she seems lucid, I don't know that she's actually present, if she's actually gonna remember this, um, if this is real, if I can trust her, if she's not going to like flip on me. So this is where that anxiety comes from. So as an adult, having that experience as a child where you're you're always kind of guarded and expecting the unexpected, you do that as adults. And adults with who have, you know, they're far in the upper right in that co- quadrant, they're very, very anxious. They tend to um, always be worried that the other person, their partner, is gonna leave them, is gonna betray them, is not going to love them anymore or is going to fall out of love, that they're going to be abandoned or hurt. They're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're always looking over their shoulder. And they could even test their partners with this. Like, do you love me? What if I do this? What if I do that? Do you still love me? Um, They can also become kind of clingy. So, you know, I don't want you to leave me. I'll do whatever it takes to keep you with me. Um, And that's where you start seeing those kind of unhealthy relationship patterns that can become kind of manipulative, but it's really coming from this place of insecurity. So moving on to the avoidant attachment style, which is the bottom right quadrant. Um, Avoidants are very, very interesting and they're different from dismissives. So dismissives, maybe I'll do that one first. That's the bottom left. Dismissives are kind of an anomaly. So these are people who do not want connection. They don't necessarily seek out companionship. They may have some social anxiety. They may be socially awkward. They may be on the autism spectrum. It may be kind of like that really mean old lady On your block who never leaves her house and all the kids are afraid of knocking on her door she doesn't want anyone to come in doesn't want anyone near her has like four cats you know like that lady who's pretty um pretty secluded and likes to keep it that way um kind of hermits doesn't really want to talk to anyone it's actually a bother to have to deal with other people those typically are people with dismissive attachment and either it's the social anxiety or a social skill deficit issue, or it could also be, you know, something a little deeper, like some really intense trauma or uh, some type of personality disorder. It could be a number of things. Um, but then we go to avoidance. So the main difference that um, the, the main distinction between dismissive and avoidant is that avoidance actually want to. Connections they want relationships they want companionship whereas the dismissive does not They don't want to be bothered. It's an inconvenience. It's a discomfort. It's not their thing not their cup of tea so with the avoidance they want the relationships they want the connection but They're only willing to Let their guard down so much they'll do just enough to get somebody, you know, in towards them to get that connection. But as far as maintaining that connection and, you know, really fostering that emotional intimacy, being open, being vulnerable, uh, no dice. That's not something they are comfortable with. So with avoid an attachment. Typically, these people will remain guarded. They keep others at a safe distance. They don't fully let anybody in. They tend to be kind of quiet. They're not very communicative or expressive. Um, They tend to be nice people. I mean, they, they want to socialize. They want, you know, relationships, but they're way more comfortable keeping them on a more surface level. Um, And now that is caused by a number of things. So avoidance typically um, have a number of things that could have happened to them in their past. Um, They can have trauma. They can also have uh, alcoholic parents. Um, With the alcoholic parent situation, If they feel like they're constantly needing to take care of themselves, or maybe even take care of the alcoholic parent, then doing the work of taking care of someone else in a relationship as an adult can be kind of off-putting. And they were never really taught in their childhoods in that situation, how to have their own needs met because the parents were not available to do so consistently. So asking for something that they needed, being able to express feelings, needs, having you know conversations that are meaningful may not be something that was readily available to them as a child because the parent was so inconsistent. So the child never, never really learned how to ask for that and have that be given to them consistently. So they learned that it's not always safe to ask and I'm not always guaranteed to get it. So as an adult, asking partners for something that they need can feel really uncomfortable. Um, It's it's kind of like uncharted territory because I'm not used to that. And also it may be the sort of thing where I don't want to be too needy um, because I remember when growing up, my parent was really needy of me and I didn't really enjoy that. So I don't want to do that to somebody else. But meanwhile, they may not be getting their needs met in their relationships. And yes, partially it's on them because they're not asking for what they need. And so they may go about getting their needs met in unhealthy ways. So in comes infidelity, going outside of their primary romantic relationships to get needs met because they don't know how to communicate their needs safely, or they can um, keep it to themselves and become resentful until finally they kind of explode with it uh, because they didn't know how to communicate it sooner. So that could be part of it. Another scenario in which people can develop this avoidant attachment is having parents who are like, what we call helicopter parents. They're like overly enmeshed and they're all up in your business and you don't really have any privacy growing up um, to the point where it's uncomfortable. And, you know, people who grow up with that can also develop and avoid an avoidant attachment style because they can um, basically be turned off by somebody constantly needing to Um, go deeper with them or needing to see them on a deeper level Um, the other piece of it also is that um, when they have enmeshed parents in some cases it can turn into an anxious attachment because they interpret that enmeshment that um, invasiveness intrusiveness of like everybody all up in my business as love and so when they meet a partner who actually is quite balanced and isn't overly invasive, they it can make them anxious and fearful that oh this person doesn't really love me. If they loved me, they would want, you know, more and more of me. Like my parents did growing up because they loved me. So I hope this gives you kind of an overview of the four styles. Now, remember, it's not just with alcoholic parents or overly invasive parents. It can be anything. It can be a specific event. It can be certain traumas. It could be certain cultural dynamics. So any number of things can influence this. And you also have to remember that people can have combinations of these and they can kind of switch back and forth between which one they're going into based on how they're feeling, what they're needing, what their fear is, all of that kind of stuff. So the most common combination is anxious and avoidant. So people will be kind of guarded and they won't fully let someone in. And then finally they let their guard down and they let someone in and then they're so afraid to lose them that they start kind of clinging. Um, So they can kind of vacillate back and forth um and it also can evolve over time you know if somebody has a really solid relationship with parents and they had a good upbringing and they're pretty secure but growing up things happen and you know dating and adolescence doesn't go well or um you know they have some bullying experiences or whatever else that can also shift and i also want to be clear that At least i'm a firm believer that these attachment styles are not set in stone we're not stuck with whatever we've developed for the rest of our lives um we can do work on ourselves to develop you know some self-awareness of when we do this what makes us feel the need to go into these patterns of clinging or putting up our guard or whatever else or being suspicious um, and once we can gain awareness, we can really do a lot of work on ourselves in therapy to resolve some of those things, to really kind of conquer them, feel better about them, um, work through some of those insecurities so that we could be really clear on what's going on for us in order to be able to communicate that effectively to everyone else around us, our friends, our family, our romantic partners, our coworkers, whatever the case may be. So. How does this play out in romantic relationships? So, first off, the anxious and the avoidant are like the classic duo, like a moth to a flame. They complement each other. They have that pursuer distancer dynamic that kind of keep things, keeps things going. Um, they tend to just... like like a heat seeking missile. Like they just attract each other and they tend to play out these dynamics in their relationships of one is the chaser, needs to be affirmed and validated. The other one is kind of um, a little bit distanced and will validate to some extent to keep the person around, but to continue validating then is kind of like a a big demand on them, and then it's no longer about them getting their needs met. So this tends to be a pretty complimentary duo. Sometimes you see two anxious people come together, in which case they get kind of, um, well, enmeshed. They're, they always have to be together. You know, they kind of isolate themselves from other people. I have to be with you. If you have any other relationships or friendships outside of our relationship, then that's hurtful to me because I feel like I'm not important. Um, it's it's not a healthy dynamic. And then you can also have two avoidant people together, um, people who feel comfortable having that safe distance, not having to fully lean all the way in, not having to really be vulnerable fully, not having to fully communicate about things. I mean, I call that pleasantville where you're just kind of coexisting and you're dealing with dynamics and you're going through the days, like going through the motions. There isn't really like a deeper connection or conversation. You know, it's, it's just this, it's almost like a thing of convenience and comfort and familiarity, but it lacks that really deep, deep bond. Um, But for some people that works. So, and for some people, having the two anxious folks together and that, you know, kind of like, you know, the two meld into one, like we are now one unit and there's nothing separating us. We are now one person um, and we have to do everything together. We make decisions together. We, you know, whatever. We, we're inseparable. We have to have our schedules align all the time, um, all of that kind of stuff that, works for some people too. So no judgment. Where I usually come in is when it stops working for people, when it starts getting difficult or when there is a lot of conflict or tension or resentment or poor communication and somebody feels like they're on the outs. That's usually when I get called in or any therapist for that matter. We don't see people who are happy I, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys get that, but it's not like someone who's just got the greatest life and best relationships and is super happy and fulfilled and satisfied and has no traumas and no family of origin stuff. They don't come see therapists. <laughs> I don't see those people. I mean, I see them, you know, maybe out and about, but the people who see me are coming in to see me because things are problematic. So, um, as far as relationships playing out with this, I think it's <clears throat> it's important to consider, you know, if you're in a relationship or you're not in a relationship or you're thinking about going into a relationship, what is it that worries you about being in a relationship? What is it that kind of makes you a little uh, apprehensive? I don't know that I really want to change my routine. Just to be in a relationship. I have to accommodate someone else's schedule. I have to like not do the things I normally like to do. Is that if that's one of your fears? Well, if you're attracting partners who demand that of you, then there's a bigger question here. You know, what is it about people who make those demands on you that draws you in? Is it appealing at first to have somebody want to kind of inundate you and um completely penetrate your world, is that appealing initially, and then does it lose its luster? And what what is it about that? Or, you know, I for some people it's I don't really have much of an identity on my own without a relationship. Um being in a relationship kind of completes me and Everything just seems better. I seem to be better. I seem to enjoy things more when I have a partner who does them all with me. Um, what is it about that? You know, what is it that scares you about having your own likes and possibly having them not match with your partners? What does that mean? Um, where's the fear come in? Basically, those are the things that I usually have my clients consider when we talk about these things. So attachment plays out in all of this in all of these different things. So, for example, with infidelity, when one person cheats on another person, the person who is cheated on reacts in all sorts of different ways. Some people will instantly leave the relationship, right? You cheated. I'm out. I don't tolerate it. It's not okay. It's a betrayal. It's painful. I'm pissed. Peace out. Right. Well, That could just be based on their principles, based on them understanding that they cannot forgive that. That is a non-negotiable, it's a bottom line thing, and they're out. Some people stay, and some people start trying to fit the mold of whatever the other person needed or felt like they were missing just to keep them. And they can try to fit that mold in a way that... um. Can actually be damaging or compromising for them. So I'll give you an example, right? Um, I have a couple where the husband r- revealed to his wife that he's had some sexual compulsivity, potentially an addiction, where he's been acting out for years with prostitutes, with um, co workers, with people everywhere and anywhere, at the gym, wherever he can meet them, basically. Um, And it came out. And for years before this came out, this couple was pretty estranged. Like they hadn't had sex more than maybe once a year for at least a decade. They were, you know, just kind of co-parenting and coexisting for the sake of the kids. And this came out, Obviously, it was really, really hurtful for the wife. Um, She was devastated and shocked. And initially, you know, the husband was really remorseful, had a lot of shame. He was really, um, he was really kind of crushed with having to come clean with this stuff. And the wife just was like, I really appreciate your honesty. I want to give you the chance to work on this. You know, I'm not kicking you out. And initially, the wife started having more desire for him. And they started having sex regularly. Um, And the wife was, like, thrilled. She's like, you know, this is... um, As painful as this is, it's also brought my husband back to me. And I missed him. And I feel like I'm making up for lost time. And I really you know i really love having him back and having this connection and the physical intimacy again and she started losing weight and changing the way she dresses trying to basically she's like you know i just feel better about myself i feel i feel better in my own skin i'm um i'm feeling myself and cool i'm all for it body positivity all the way i think you should love the skin you're in but Here's my little red flag is if he hadn't told you about this, would you still be doing this? And the answer is no. So are you doing this for you or are you doing this to keep him from straying again? Is this a trauma response? Is this coming from that betrayal and you not wanting to have it happen again and trying to do whatever you can to prevent it? Well, he can't go act out sexually with prostitutes if he's, you know, having his needs met and totally satisfied at home. Well, it's not your job, really, to make sure he's satisfied to keep him from straying. Whether he's satisfied or not, going outside the marriage is still wrong. And even if he's not getting his needs met, he needs to communicate that so it's coming from this fearful place and lo and behold a few months later this period of you know wanting to be sexual with him and connecting with him passed and all of a sudden she got really really upset and she's like you know i feel like i just i gave him access to my body and i did it for him and it wasn't for me and i wasn't fully feeling safe i was still you know really upset and betrayed by what he did and now I feel even worse for doing that with him too soon. It's almost like it excused everything he did. And I absolutely am not excusing it. So this sort of back and forth thing, it can be confusing. It can come from different things. This dynamic with this anxious attachment, she went right into anxious of I'm going to violate my own boundaries and completely put aside my sense of safety in the relationship to try to ensure um, the stability of this relationship, that I'm not gonna lose my partner, that I'm gonna keep him around um, when he's obviously not been as invested as she's needed him to be. So, I think you got to pay attention because then once it flipped and then she was like, Nope, I don't want you to touch me. I need space. I'm not okay with having sex right now. I don't feel safe about this. I need some time. And, um, and so she had to set up some boundaries. So she kind of flipped into this avoidant thing where she wanted to keep the marriage and she wanted to see him continue to work on it. But the physical intimacy piece kind of, Um, got put on hold a little bit until she could reestablish some more trust and safety. So you see, she kind of vacillated. And at that point, the husband kind of started pursuing her a little bit more aggressively um, in the relationship because he was remorseful and he wanted to work on himself and right the wrong that he did and fix, fix the marriage, repair the marriage, rebuild the trust. So he started pursuing and doing this anxious thing. So their dynamic kind of switched and that's normal. That's really common, but it's important to pay attention to these things and like what happens, what are the different circumstances that bring this stuff up? Because most people, we tend to run on autopilot. Like we don't really pay attention to this sort of stuff, but it's important and it, speaks volumes and it's not just you know communication it's not just pragmatics it's deeper more emotional stuff and we need to pay attention so I hope this gives you guys kind of a basic overview of attachment Um, I talk about attachment quite a bit as most therapists do and I want to make sure that you guys have a basic understanding of what it is so that if I do mention it You can um, already be in the know and be able to follow along and not go, wait, huh? What's that? So uh, if you have questions, if you have feedback, if there's anything else you're curious about, comments, queries, complaints, compliments, whatever it is, Uh, Please feel free to leave me feedback uh, and the different platforms that allow it. Or you can find me on social media and I welcome your feedback. So thanks for listening and I hope you tune in next time.